Hello, listeners. This week, I'm returning to a conversation with medical historian Jonathan S. Jones about America's worst outbreak of epidemic disease, which occurred during and just after the Civil War. It killed about 1 million people. That's 3% of the U.S. population at the time, including soldiers, newly emancipated ex-slaves, families caught in the crossfire, and refugees seeking safety. Epidemics of smallpox, measles, typhoid, and so-called chronic diarrhea became what Johnson calls the invisible third army of the war. It's a riveting conversation, though it does get a little gross at times. And for people traveling for the holidays after missing out last year, there's something reassuring about how 19th century soldiers recognized the critical value of vaccines. We'll be back with a new conversation next week. The mass movement of millions of people taught the Civil War generation that epidemic diseases flourish when people travel and gather. At the time the war broke out, four-fifths of Americans lived in rural settings and rarely strayed far from home. So they had limited exposure to sicknesses like measles and smallpox that were typically contracted in urban populations during childhood and adolescence. When the rural young men who comprised the Civil War's gargantuan armies began mobilizing in 1861, Millions of recruits without immunity to smallpox and measles packed into crowded training camps, which rivaled the population density of the biggest cities in America and Europe. With unprotected populations exposed to unfamiliar pathogens, huge disease outbreaks followed, killing hundreds of thousands and putting entire units out of commission. That was Jonathan Jones, a postdoctoral scholar at Penn State's George and Ann Richards Civil War Era Center, who's about to start a new position at Virginia Military Institute, reading from his recent first opinion titled Lessons Learned and Forgotten from the Horrific Epidemics of the U.S. Civil War. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm here with Debbie Donovan, Global Head of Environment, Health, and Safety at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Debbie, I've heard Takeda has made some bold environmental commitments. What are a few steps that the company is taking to reduce its environmental impact? Thanks, Angus. Takeda is dedicated to bringing life-transforming treatments to patients around the globe while working to create a more sustainable future. Last year, we became a carbon-neutral business. We focused on internal energy conservation measures and the use of green energy. We also invested in renewable energy certificates and high-quality, verified carbon offsets. Still, we know there's more to do. Takeda is committed to being net zero by 2040 and working to reach goals we've set in the areas of water, waste, and product stewardship. We're actively collaborating with industry groups to reduce our environmental impact by doing things like improving the recyclability of packaging and devices. We'll continue our efforts to mitigate environmental impact to create better health for people and a brighter future for the world. Thanks, Debbie. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's T-A-K-E-D-A.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett. Editor of First Opinion, Stats Platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, 
and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So what got you interested in delving into the history of the Civil War? Honestly, it started in sort of a roundabout way. I grew up playing computer games, uh, and some of those games were Civil War games, and it all sort of snowballed from there. Um, but what got me into specifically the medical history of the Civil War is that for, for a while, um, when I was sort of in the early part of, of college, I thought I might want to be a doctor. Um, I was totally fascinated by things like smallpox and how people um, contracted them and, and how they went away um, eventually. So um, uh, in particular, I think that is evident in the American Civil War. So these two interests that I had in medical history and the Civil War sort of coalesced. Um, and it's it's uh, snowballed almost out of control from there. This is sort of what I do uh, in the classroom and, and with my research. So as you describe it, the war between the states wasn't just a bloody, deadly clash between two human armies, but a deadly clash between humans and infectious disease. Was disease on this scale new to the U.S., or was this a continuation of an old struggle? Yeah, this was this was disease was um, so important during the American Civil War that uh, medical historians refer to it as a third army. Disease, you know, was was a factor in all facets of the Civil War. So, like you mentioned, it wasn't just a clash between these two armies. The the U.S. Army and the Confederate Army it was also a clash between these two armies and an invisible one, which was the Third Army of Disease, and it could completely dramatically change the outcome of different military campaigns, and it did. The, the, the thing is, though, is that disease wasn't unique to the Civil War. The, the Civil War basically just compounded the existence of, of um, disease and, uh, you know, things, sicknesses, things like that, that had always sort of been present in American life um, from the, the birth of the country. Had this been a problem during the Revolutionary War or the War of 1812? Yeah, absolutely. During the Revolutionary War, smallpox got so bad that um, Washington, for example, George Washington, leader of the, the, the Continental Army, um, at one point vaccinated his whole army to make the problem of smallpox go away. So there had been um, not only the, the precedent that disease could you know, just completely um, mow down your forces to the point that you almost had no army left, there was also the precedent of imposing vaccination on troops to, to keep armies mobile in the field. Are there any estimates of the magnitude of the toll taken by disease during the Civil War compared to deaths and injuries from combat? Yeah, absolutely. Over, overall, about a million people uh, died during the American Civil War, including soldiers and civilians. Um, and the best estimate is that two-thirds of them died from disease, from, from sicknesses. So basically, for every one combat death, there were three disease deaths. Two-thirds. That's enormous. Yeah, it's enormous. And I think it's something that when we talk about the Civil War itself, we tend to forget that, that the, the main killer in the Civil War was not um, bullets or, or amputations, the things that sort of pop out uh, when, we, when we see like Civil War movies, for example, um, but rather it was the diseases that, that killed the majority of people. What were the main so-called camp diseases? Yeah, there were all different kinds of uh, or, or genres of diseases is sort of how I think about it. So these were things like measles, um, smallpox was another important camp disease. Also things like influenza and tuberculosis. Eventually you started as more and more, uh, and this is kind of gross, but this is one of the things that I think medical history is so interesting um, because of the gross stuff, right? Um, but eventually when you have uh, overcrowded camps, that could be, you know, the size of, of places like New York City or London sort of just pop up overnight. There was limited um, sanitation, limited drainage. So 
you know, people had to go to the bathroom, right? And so eventually um, diseases that were spread through human waste started popping up in camps too. And so these were things like dysentery, um, typhoid. Uh, my favorite one to talk about is something that was referred to as chronic diarrhea. Um, and it's a little bit unclear to us as sort of medical historians, medical detectives, looking back in time, what exactly this was. But my best guess is that these were, um, could be parasites, could be bacteria that sort of got into Civil War soldiers' guts um, and, can, and, and made them basically have diarrhea for sometimes decades. You see Civil War veterans in the 1880s, 1890s still suffering from uh, so-called chronic diarrhea that they picked up in the army. So lots of gross diseases of all different kinds um, affected Civil War soldiers in camps. I, as I understand it, e even something like smallpox could have lifelong repercussions. So some of the things that happened on the battlefield or in training camps lingered with soldiers for years. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Civil War resulted for, for so many people in um, lifelong disability and sickness. Um, for soldiers who had chronic diarrhea and, and some men who got um, smallpox, for example, smallpox is a really interesting case too because of the, the scars that were involved in, in smallpox. You know, when you think about pictures of people that have smallpox, you think about the scabs and the pus, right? Well, those would leave um, scars like pockmark scars all over the bodies and in particular the faces of people who managed to survive smallpox. And there was a stigma attached to that. People wrote in their letters about how they um, not only their self-image, like how they viewed themselves suffered, but also people would look at them differently when they would walk down the street. Um, they would be um, grossed out and, and people would sort of like metaphorically go to the other side of the street and, and, and walk uh, on the other sidewalk, if, if that makes sense. And that's because the disease was associated with, with like filth and, um, you know, almost immigration. Yeah, absolutely. And this was a time of uh, the, the, the Civil War era, particularly after the Civil War in the 1870s and 1880s. This was a time of mass immigration to the United States. And so um, in the popular imagination, people started, Americans started connecting um, disease outbreaks, things like smallpox and, and in particular um, tuberculosis and also plague. Um, they started connecting these diseases to new arrivals, um, even though the reality is that that wasn't necessarily the case. These diseases occurred both among immigrants and people who had been in the country their, their whole lives, right? But um, that uh, the, the the sort of xenophobia against immigration got sort of transferred over to diseases as well, and it um, only compounded the the stigma associated with disease. You know, in the excerpt you read at the top, you explained how most Americans at the time lived in rural settings. How did that limit their exposure to infectious disease? Yeah, this is wild to think about, and it's so different from um, how we live our lives before COVID, before the, the lockdowns. Um, most Americans, you know, we tend to go on vacation, we tend to live in cities, so we travel, we come into contact with lots of other people. And so in our childhoods, we get things like smallpox, or not, not smallpox, um, chickenpox, right? So um, uh, it wasn't the case during the Civil War. Most Americans, uh, four-fifths of Americans grew up in rural settings. They lived on farms. Um, uh, enslaved people lived on plantations. And so they had um, basically the, the exposure that they had to other people was limited to a few dozen or a few hundred people for most of, of their lives. And so that really cut down on um, transmission of diseases like measles and smallpox. So, you know, when um, teenagers uh, and, and men in their early 20s joined Civil War armies, um, for the first time, they, they would come into contact with people who uh, that, that minority of people who lived in cities and had 
um, contracted measles before. So uh, it led to these really um, big disparities in troops that came from rural places that had um, really high rates of, of disease like measles and troops in contrast who had grown up in cities, places like New York City or D.C., and they had much less transmission of measles among them. I've read that while measles is more infectious, smallpox is more deadly. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And the, the deadliness of smallpox, a lot of it depends on um, the, the kind of nursing care that, that you get, basically. So during the Civil War, even though smallpox was tremendously, almost like hard to imagine um, levels of, of death for us today because we don't deal with, with smallpox um, anymore. But uh, even, even though um, smallpox was sort of inherently very deadly, it's a deadly disease, uh, the virus is deadly, you could do, Civil War nurses and doctors could do different things to help soldiers uh, immune systems fight off the disease and, and hopefully they would survive. So things like bed rest in a clean bed, not a dirty bed. Um, things like, you know, exposure to, to outside air, like wafting into a hospital tent. So good airflow. Um, and in particular, good diet. If, if soldiers were given healthy food and a lot of it, it really increased their odds of surviving things like smallpox. Um, on the flip side, um, some soldiers, especially, you know, white soldiers, um, in, in the North were given these things that would help them survive these diseases where other soldiers, black soldiers were, were not. So there were racial disparities that showed up as well. You know, you wrote as others have that the problems that soldiers faced, including black soldiers who volunteered to fight for the North and those who were conscripted to fight for the South, the problems were magnified for enslaved people who took freedom into their own hands and fled slavery by the thousands. What were their journeys like? So the, the Civil War um, taught, teaches um, the, the lesson for historians of medicine, basically that um, epidemics, disease outbreaks compound existing social inequalities, and in particular, racial inequalities. So um, uh, the Civil War, which is a war that's fought over the issue of slavery, um, uh, resulted in emancipation. So during the war, the way that this worked is that as Union armies moved into the South and started taking over different um, parts of the South, enslaved people took their opportunity. They left plantations and they started um, taking whatever they could, which often wasn't very, very much because they weren't allowed to own much property. And they would flee to Union Army lines. Um, so eventually they started um, creating like ramshackle refugee camps. Well, these camps faced, these refugee camps um, where enslaved people lived, faced the same problems that um, the, the, the army faced in its own camps. There were disease outbreaks, for the same reasons um, in refugee camps, but there were no doctors. Um, the, the army didn't necessarily provide medical care in most cases to um, formerly enslaved refugees because um, of, of various debates that were happening over how emancipation should play out, right? So most um, Union Army officers who were white um, and many of them who were, were also racist um, essentially sat back and said, this is not my problem. Um, so whatever health crisis is going on in the local refugee camp, um, you know, it's not my problem to deal with that. So the measures that officers and surgeons applied to um, military camps where white soldiers lived, those usually were not applied to the refugee camp down the street um, where in, formerly enslaved people were massing. So you, whereas um, halfway through the war, you see smallpox start to decline among um, white soldiers, you see the opposite among um freed people, um, black people who had fled plantations uh, and um, all of a sudden contracted smallpox en masse. And there were thousands and thousands of deaths um, 
because of of these kinds of inequalities in the medical in the medical um, framework. The problem that you've described seems to be especially bad in prisoner of war camps. You mentioned Andersonville in your essay. Can you tell listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, if anyone has ever visited Georgia in the summer, uh, you know that it's hot, it's humid, the weather's not great for your health anyways. Um, but uh, Georgia was um, one of the, the places where um, captured Confederate, uh, captured un- Union soldiers that were captured by the Confederate Army would go and, and be put into prisoner of war camps. The biggest of these, and by far the most unhealthy, was this place called Andersonville Camp, which is out in a swamp um, in rural Georgia. So inherently, the weather, um, the conditions, the, the health conditions there are already bad. There's mosquitoes. Um, they you know, transmit things like malaria. So it's just a generally unhealthy place to be in 1864, 1865. Um, but when, you, when the Confederate military took thousands and thousands, about 40,000 U.S. soldiers or U.S. prisoners total, and put them into Andersonville camp, which was basically just an open field surrounded by a wooden stockade with men milling about in it. I mean, there were no permanent structures. Um, there were no beds for people to sleep in. Um, they were sleeping, uh, you know, on a swamp, essentially. Um, it just completely, you know, became a, a huge health disaster, right? So at Andersonville, it really gives you a, 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 an amplified portrait, um, a detailed portrait of the medical crisis that was the Civil War. Everything bad that happened to Civil War um, armies in terms of disease and sickness happened at Andersonville. And so it's like a microcosm of, of the broader health outlook of the Civil War. So I'll give you an example, and that's um, dysentery, dysentery and typhoid, actually. Um, so these are diseases that are spread uh, through human human waste, basically. So in Andersonville, the um, water supply was this river that um, would flow through the swampy place where all these guys had to, to basically hang out and, and sleep and eat all day, right? So um, feces would get into that um, water supply. It spread dysentery and, and typhoid to the, the soldiers who then would go and use the latrines and that would amplify the problem. And it became just this giant quagmire of, of diseases driven by human waste. So it was a really, really dangerous situation. And actually about a quarter of the men who were imprisoned at Andersonville died of these diseases. But it must have been even worse on the battlefield. You know, you, you set up camp. Uh, nobody wants to dig a latrine, you know, a thousand yards away. So what did they do? Yeah, Civil War soldiers were tired. They had to work, you know, all all day. They 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 burned thousands and thousands of calories marching, um, doing work, uh, you know, fighting occasionally. And so the, these guys essentially didn't necessarily want to go along with their orders to dig latrines properly. Um, you know, the army said, for example, latrines were supposed to be dug like a football field away from camp so that they wouldn't contaminate the drinking water. Well, soldiers who had been marching, you know, 20 miles a day uh, in the, the hot summer of Virginia or Georgia didn't feel like getting up at night and or, or in the evening and going and digging a latrine. So they would just go to the bathroom next to their tent. It sounds gross, but but it happened. And that was one of the major factors that led to disease deaths during the Civil War. You know, uh, back to smallpox for a second. Vaccination against smallpox wasn't unknown at the time. I mean, Boston preacher Cotton Mather was promoting in a Boston in 1721. And you mentioned that it was used during the Revolutionary War. Did either army, north or south, um, try to vaccinate their soldiers? Vaccination was um, a really controversial flashpoint um, 
then just like it is now. But um, the, 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 the military um, in both the, the U.S. and the Confederacy realized pretty quickly that smallpox was becoming a problem and that vaccination was the answer. Um, so you see um, in the North where the medical corps was more organized and more efficient, you see mass vaccination drives. As soon as soldiers um, arrived in camps, they would often be, uh, the ones who already had smallpox would be stuck in, in isolation wards um, in hospitals and camps. The rest of them were vaccinated. Um, and Civil War doctors would actually create their own batches of vaccines. Sometimes these worked, sometimes they were uh, badly made, so, so they, they could be quite dangerous as well. But uh, essentially what would happen is Civil War surgeons um, would, in, in training camps and, and hospitals, they would take some of the small, this is going to be gross, so to anybody that's eating lunch, you know, you've been warned. Um, they would take some of the pus and the scabs from people who had active cases of smallpox, sort of distill them or they would take the, you know, distill them into sort of um, extra pussy uh, you know, situations where, where they could be applied to other soldiers, or sometimes they would even take them, put them in little envelopes and mail them to their fellow surgeons. So, so you actually sometimes find in Civil War letters, smallpox scabs. And if that happens, you should call the CDC. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, smallpox among, uh, federal soldiers during the Civil War, the, the rate of smallpox plummeted. On the flip side, smallpox deaths among soldiers in the Confederacy, where they weren't able to really implement um, efficient or widespread vaccination, even though they tried, smallpox deaths stayed high. So the lesson there that American doctors and American people took away from this was that government-sponsored mass vaccination campaigns work. So after the Civil War, uh, in the late 1860s, the, the, the individuals who had been in Civil War armies, both the soldiers and the doctors and also the, the military officers took this lesson home with them. And you start to see municipalities across the country embark on smallpox mass vaccination campaigns. So it was really a pivotal moment in the history of vaccines in the US. What are some of the parallels you see between lessons learned from the Civil War and what we're going through now with COVID-19? Mm. The Civil War really teaches us um, three big lessons that are applicable to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And the first one is really simple. The Civil War taught Americans that when people travel and gather in huge um, crowds, that diseases flourish, epidemics start. And I, I you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a professor, right? So I, I work on college campuses. And so in my world, this is um, something that I saw universities um, do across the United States in the fall of 2020. Um, universities, um, many universities brought college students back to campus for a variety of reasons that are, are good reasons. Um, uh, but, you know, predictably, um, just like we saw in the Civil War training camps, we saw that college um, campuses became incubators of COVID-19 and that would spread through the, the local communities. Another lesson that you can take away from the Civil War that is applicable to COVID-19 is faith in public health. And this is obviously one of the big things that we're all grappling with right now as we're trying to bring the, the epidemic to heal um, and, and make it go away and get back to normal life, right? There's a, a real skepticism in modern America um, in, in some quarters of public health. People don't want to be told what to do. Other people believe in um, misinformation and, and sort of conspiracy theories that say that public health is bad, right? But in reality, the, you know, the, the Civil War teaches the opposite. The Civil War teaches that public health saves lives. When the Army, um, the, the U.S. Army started implementing public health measures and rigidly enforcing them, it saved lives. Um, when people left the Army and went home to America, uh, you know, all across the U.S., um, but in particular, northern cities after the war, 
they started applying the same lessons that they had used in the army to places like New York City, and it saved lives there too. So this really created in the late 19th century, um, by the year 1900, a growing faith among average Americans in public health. People wanted cities to, to clean up the streets. People wanted to um, believe that public health could, could save lives. Um, and I think we've lost that. I think, you know, if, if um, there was more faith in public health today, then um, just like after the Civil War, we could see uh, a better outlook for, for COVID. And it's really unfortunate that we haven't, haven't seen that same faith in public health. The uh, a third lesson that the Civil War teaches us um, about uh, public health, and this I think is, is particularly applicable to COVID. You can really see this in the numbers, uh, the, the COVID mortality numbers, if you look at them on the CDC website. Um, the lesson is that epidemics compound existing racial inequalities in medicine. Um, and you really see this in the case of slavery and black soldiers um, during the Civil War. The mortality rates, um, the mortality uh, disparities between black and white Union, Union Army soldiers were off the charts. And that is um, that can be chalked up to basically inferior medical care that was given to black soldiers uh, and also the same rule applied to um, formerly enslaved refugees. So you see, um, you know, fast forward 150 years later, you see the same kinds of situations occurring in the United States today with COVID-19. So you can really see this in the numbers. Um, and it, it's hard to lie with these with these figures. Well, some people would doubt you on uh, it's hard to lie with figures. But, right. <laughs> but I hear what you're, <laughs> yeah, hear what yeah. you're saying. If, if you're if you're willing to, to read, if you're willing to um, see what there is to be seen in numbers, then I think that this is um, a, a lesson that you can really take away from both uh, the Civil War and COVID-19. With all of the deaths during the Civil War, both on the battlefield, in prison of war camps, and in quarantine tents, were family back home always notified that their loved one had died? No, and this is really one of the tragedies of, of the Civil War's health crisis. Um, families were totally desperate for news about their loved ones. And so, um, but, but, but the military wasn't prepared to deal with the scale of death during the Civil War. Uh, case in point, there was no formal system for loved ones of soldiers to be notified that their their soldiers had died. That just didn't exist during the Civil War. So what, what it really came down to was if um, a soldier died, his buddy would write a letter to um, the, the person's family saying, you know, your, your loved one has died and I'm letting you know. So what, what ended up happening, though, is that many, many, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of men fell in the cracks and they, their families were just never notified that they died. So after the Civil War um, in 1865 and 66 and 67, there was um, a mass search among families back home to figure out what happened to their soldiers that never came back. That sort of temporal disconnect sounds like what we were hearing through COVID-19 with people not even being able to go visit a loved one, especially one who is dying in the hospital. Absolutely. Um, in in the, the U.S., you know, uh, American history teaches you that Americans expect to be near their loved ones at the moment of death. Like we expect to, you know, we hope to pass away surrounded by our loved, one, loved ones. And in particular, in the 19th century, Americans really put a lot of stock in dying the right way. Um, historians call this the good death, like the ideal, the perfect way to go out of this world in Civil War America was to die in a bed surrounded by your loved ones saying, you know, I love you. And they would say that back to you and then you would pass away. Um, during the Civil War on battlefields, this is not how people died in Civil War hospitals. That's not how people died. And so it really disrupted 
um, these ideals about um, how people died. And that made the, the, the sheer death rates of the Civil War feel even worse because it, it wasn't what Americans were used to, right? And I think you see, like you mentioned, Pat, you see the same thing with uh, COVID-19 today. One of the hardest things to deal with um, for, for a lot of people in the U.S., um, who have lost loved ones to COVID is the fact that they couldn't be there in the their loved ones' last moments. Um, and so this is a real similarity that you can see between the Civil War and now. So Jonathan Jones, thank you for taking a deeper dive into public health lessons from the Civil War with us today. I appreciate your talking with me and look forward to your future work in this area. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.